All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of Mythic Existence. Today, I'm actually going to be recycling an old episode that I did for a podcast that I was hosting while I was a graduate student. Um, I did a year-long internship at Aggie Radio over at Utah State University, where I hosted a podcast called Beast Lore. Some of you might be familiar with it if you've kind of tracked my... uh, you know, podcasting history over the years, but uh, all of the episodes I've posted, at least most of them by now, are not available online, and I'm trying to do kind of some deeper research for episodes I have in the future, and I didn't want to rush today's episode, so I figured might as well just, uh, you know, repost one of those old episodes So today's episode is all about the history of werewolves. Um, It's a really interesting episode. I kind of trace the history of werewolves and talk about their kind of sociological function. So that's what you're going to be hearing today. So I hope you enjoy. Today we're going to be talking about werewolves. You know, werewolves are a really interesting topic to study. You can really learn a lot about uh, a people at a given place and time by studying werewolves. They almost serve as a, an entry point into a sociological study of a culture. So today I'm going to be kind of tracing the historical development of werewolves, starting from their most ancient recordings from Herodotus in the 5th century BC into the modern day, looking at Hollywood monsters. And one thing that you'll learn is that werewolves haven't always been the same throughout time. The medieval werewolf is very different from the Hollywood werewolf. Not all of the things that you think about when you think of werewolves as far as a physical transformation, the silver bullet, that hasn't always been part of the dialogue surrounding werewolves. The things that medieval people associated with werewolves are very different from the things that we associate with werewolves today. So it'll be really interesting to trace that development. I'll go into some historical cases of werewolves, and it's really some fascinating stuff. So it should be a really interesting story. Well, if you don't know what a cryptid is, it's basically the study of cryptozoology, which means hidden, hidden animals. They're animals that might be actually existing, like Bigfoot, um, the Loch Ness Monster, and stuff like that, are, are actually creatures that we think are hidden, but actually exist. Werewolves are a little bit different than that. At this point of time, most people don't think that, think that actual werewolves exist. But throughout time, it's been a definite question about whether werewolves are something that's out there can people actually turn into werewolves? It's a fascinating question. And there's actually a difference between werewolves and lycanthropes, which is something that's really you need to understand in this situation. Werewolves are basically the creatures that are humans that go through some kind of physical transformation and become a werewolf. It's something that happens on the physical level, and that's, you know, most people today don't think that werewolves exist. 
That's very different than a lycanthrope. A lycanthrope is an actual pathological condition that's been accepted by modern-day doctors uh, and medical practitioners, really. What lycanthropy is, is somebody that actually believes that they are a werewolf. This has been something that we've actually been able to trace and see occur in people is something happens in internally in their life that makes them believe that they are actually a werewolf. Several cases that I've looked at of actual historical lycanthropes in recent time was a woman who she was basically trying to escape from a really bad sexual conflict that may have ended up leading to a suicide. And as a way to cope with this trauma that she's experiencing in her life, she resorted to lycanthropy. Um, And so my understanding is that if you're going to become a lycanthrope, it's a response to some kind of traumatic event, something that you really can't get your mind around or deal with in the real life. And you resort to lycanthropy. Another person, this guy was a soldier. He was a drug user. He had compulsions to devour wild rabbits, and he was obsessed with with Satanism, and he resorted to lycanthropy. And then there was another man who was a farmer, and he was having a hard time functioning as a farmer in his work. He was having a hard time growing crops and... He couldn't really function anymore, so he decided to live outdoors. He let his hair grow out. He started howling at the moon. And again, this was kind of a response to the his lack of function within society. And it's really interesting to question with humans, you know, why are we so interested in werewolves? And maybe this just might be me. Maybe I'm weird and everybody out there is like, I don't think that werewolves are interesting. What are you talking about? Well, I think that they're really interesting, and clearly people have been interested in werewolves for quite a long time. Like I've said, this this goes back to Herodotus in the 5th century BC. So this is thousands of years in the making. Humans' obsession with werewolves and physical transformation. And I think that one of the reasons that this might be is that it's sort of... Um, an escape mechanism that we have put into our place to sort of get away from the real violence of, of society. Werewolves are almost a projection of the unfathomable, the darkest parts of humanity. They're, they're often associated with multiple murders, heinous sexual acts, cannibalism, torture, sadomasochism, and Satanism. And really what this is is humans anthropomorphizing animals. So if you don't know what anthropomorphism is, it's basically giving human qualities onto animals. And it's kind of ironic, actually, and there's a lot of ironies in this whole situation, is that once we project our worst qualities onto these animals, the darkest side of humanity is revealed. You know, so... We're putting all of these terrible things like attacking your neighbor, killing people, doing terrible sexual acts onto an animal, but it's actually things that occur 
within human society. So it's a way for us to actually kind of confront those things without having to do it directly. And werewolves are actually a therianthrope. So if you don't know what therianthropy is, it's basically when a human has the ability to go underneath some kind of physical transformation into an animal. And therianthropy is something that we can actually see being depicted on ancient cave paintings. There's a very famous uh, cave painting in France. I can't off the top of my head remember what specific cave this is in, but it's one of the, the very ancient ones. And there's a famous painting of a man. Well, actually, it's more like a deer sort of person. Uh, and it has an erection. So it has very clear human qualities to it, just the way it's being depicted. And one of the main kind of theories that's why was this depicted on the cave is that it was actually depiction of a shaman going through that kind of transformation that a shaman might go through in a shamanic state. So therianthropy is actually often associated with shamanism. And of course, shamanism is basically the the medicine men, the healers of many societies throughout time. There's still many shamanic societies in existence today, but these transformations are said to have occurred through altered states of consciousness. Uh, the, sh- the shaman's change into an animal wasn't something that happened necessarily on the, the purely physical level, but it's something that happened in a different realm of the mind. And this is actually something that I'm going to go into more detail about this later, but one of the theories about why people thought werewolves were existing especially in the Middle Ages and times like that, was because of the presence of a substance called ergot in the rye of the Middle Ages. And this would induce sort of LSD-like trances, or I guess not so much a trance, but more like a state in the individual. And they would believe themselves to have been going into a werewolf, turning into a werewolf, or maybe you would actually see one of your friends or neighbors, just somebody in the community actually acting as a werewolf. So that's a really interesting theory. I'm going to go into more details about that later. But let's talk about kind of the, the very beginning of werewolves being discussed, which how I've, how I've said this is comes from Herodotus. In the 5th century BC, the great historian Herodotus said that there is a, a group of people called the Nurians who were shapeshifters, and for a certain period of the year, they had the ability to turn into wolves. So this is really the first time that in history you can see sort of an individual turning into a wolf being discussed. In writing, at least. Not so, I mean, we've already seen that there's cave paintings, so maybe there's a lot more to look in for that, but... Herodotus didn't actually use the term werewolf. The werewolf doesn't come along as an actual term till much later. The first use of it is about in the 11th century AD, and I'll, I'll go into what that usage was. But the the idea of men being men and women being able to turn into wolves is a very ancient idea. 
originates with Herodotus, and this is kind of the presence of shapeshifters, and a lot of people think that these Nereans were actually shamans, and that Herodotus was talking about shamans, not so much the actual physical transformation into a werewolf. And this question is of can men and women, can people actually go through a physical transformation is a baffling question that has been at the core of the, the whole situation of werewolfism and lycanthropy since the very beginning. You have to question, is this a physical possibility or is this something that happens for other reasons? And the explanations that people have have very very differently over time and at the same time people will have very different ideas about it so that's the most ancient sort of reference that i could come up with the another really important one actually comes from ovid in his book the metamorphosis and if you haven't read ovid's metamorphosis it's a fascinating read terrific read it's a treasure trove of ancient myths I highly suggest reading it. It's very lyrical. It's it's just a, so fascinating to read all of these ancient myths. And one of the first stories in the entire book sur- uh, surrounds the situation of a certain king named Lycaon, who was an Arcadian king, and he basically got into a t- tussle with the god Jupiter, who is equivalent to Zeus. He's the Roman Zeus. And it's really interesting to note that this myth actually was being discussed in the context of the Golden Age, the Iron Age, and the Bronze Age. And so if you guys don't know about this, this is really interesting also. But ancient societies, the the Romans, uh, the Greeks, the, the Hindus, the Hopi the Maya, the Aztec, they all believed in this concept of a great cycle of ages. And what it has to do with is actually the procession of the equinoxes. There's a fascinating book. Well, there's a few books. Hamlet's Mill, that's written by a, f- a couple of scholars, and it's very exhaustive about this topic. And there's a book called Lost Star, and there's a book called Serp- Serpent in the Sky by John Anthony West. All of these books kind of cover this sort of theory. Well, it's not so much a theory. It's actually scientific fact that the procession of the equinoxes happen. And what the procession of the equinoxes is, is that basically the constellation that you would see in the sky on the equinox changes gradually over time. And they had this theory that basically as the, those constellations shifted around the Earth, that different ages would take place. And so there is the Golden Age discussed very at, at the very beginning of this, of the, of the metamorphosis, where it's eternal spring, everything is great, there's not really suffering. The Iron Age is a little bit less than that. Uh, you know, there, there's a little bit of strife and discord among the people. But then there's the Bronze Age comes up, and everything is just terrible. And Jupiter decides to go to Earth to basically confront this king like Haon to see how he would respond to a god being in his midst. And Lycaon basically says, 
you know, I don't care if this is a god. I'm going to figure out if he is a god or not. And Lycaon ends up putting a plate of, well, it contains the body of a peasant in it. So he's enacting cannibalism, and he's feeding a dead person to the highest god. Now, this is an absolute, such a high crime, almost unfathomable of a high crime to do, and Lycaon goes out and does it. Jupiter takes a bite of the food, and he figures out that he's, you know, being fed a cannibal, basically. And what he does is he turns Lycaon into a wolf. And so he basically turns Lycaon into the wolf so that he can feed into these beastly, terrible sort of uh, drives that he has in a more fitting form. So this is a physical transformation from man into wolf. But again, the term werewolf isn't being used. And that's how a lot of these ancient myths are, is that they're almost uh, a call to follow piety. And they're basically a, a moral story. You know, you shouldn't, <laughs> you should be nice to your neighbor. You shouldn't feed them peasants. You should, well, he killed the peasant also, so he's murdering, he's enacting cannibalism. This is just saying these are terrible things for you to do, essentially. And later on, the Middle Ages arises, and things start to change a little bit. And if you don't know, the Middle Ages are from, the generally, it's from 500 uh, A.D. to 1500 A.D., and this is, of course, you know, the European Middle Ages, really, that we're talking about. And there's there's werewolves and lycanthropes everywhere, but I'm going to be talking a lot about the, the European ones and the American ones, a little bit in South America, actually, also. But once the Middle Ages arise, they're starting to attack critical questions through the prism of werewolves. Looking into werewolves in the Middle Ages says a lot about the religious beliefs, especially. It's a, it's a look into the nature of violence, what they thought about crime and mental health. It says a lot about the involvement of the supernatural, as well as the socialization of individuals, the, the role of jurisprudence, and sort of how you would actually prosecute an individual for the crimes of werewolfism, and as we'll see, Satanism and witchcraft. And it's really a question about what is good and evil. Who is good? Who is evil? How can we sort of know? And one thing that's worthy to acknowledge is that when the threat of werewolves were actually real, these fictional accounts that were maybe the ancient myths or the modern portrayals in Hollywood were replaced with actual trials. So in the Middle Ages, there is actually a threat of the uh, maybe werewolves existing. So there is trial records, and actually, let me fix, let me correct myself on that. A lot of people actually think that the things like witch trials and the werewolf trials and the genocides really that occurred of them were things that really happened in the Middle Ages, but that was actually not true. It was more so the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the early modern period where these ter- these terrible sort of purgations of werewolves occurred. And so those are ages that are associated with 
rationalism and sort of getting away from like magical beliefs, which I don't really think was a good thing. But anyway, they're actually that's when the real bad things started to happen to people that who were believed to be witches or werewolves. So the first use of the term werewolf comes from the ecclesiastical ordinances of King Nut in 1017. And basically, this original account kind of associated werewolves with the scriptures. So let me read off to you this sort of usage, uh, the first usage of the term werewolf. Therefore, must the shepherds be very watchful and diligently crying out, who have to shield the people against a spoiler, such are bishops and mass priests who are to preserve and defend their spiritual flocks with wise instructions that the madly audacious werewolf do not widely devastate nor bite too many of the spiritual flock. So if you actually look deeply at this, clo- this quote, it's associated with sort of the, the scriptures. Um, and this is really a sort of allusion to for one, Christ's mount on the ser- Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but in- inwardly they are ravening wolves. And also to Paul's address to the Ephesians, which says, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And really, these quotes are actually references to satanic forces trying to infiltrate the, the, the flock of Christianity, essentially. And so, the sheep and the flock are Christian parishioners who are vulnerable to spiritual attack by satanic forces. The shepherds are bishops and priests who are instructed to protect their flock from diabolic attack. And the werewolf is Satan and his cohorts who wish to destroy the faith of the sheep and to damn them to perdition. So this is really when we get into the fact that uh, werewolves in the Middle Ages were really associated with Satanism and witchcraft. And this is kind of easy to believe if you know anything about sort of the beliefs of the Middle Ages, especially in Europe, obviously. And it's very different from today. Our first answer to what werewolves are, we don't really think about Satan and the power of witches right off the bat. But in the fifth or in the Middle Ages, they definitely were doing that. And it's interesting to note at this point of time, there's really no admission that werewolfism, lycanthropy, which that term didn't even exist by this point, was a mental condition, a psychological condition. At that point in time, they believed that Satan basically had the power to either go into people's bodies and become a werewolf or to trick them into believing that they were a werewolf. And sort of a third actual thing that he could do was to sort of influence an individual to see another person as a werewolf. So if people were seeing werewolves, experiencing werewolves, stuff like that, it was to believe to be the power of Satan that was doing it. And we can see this sort of being referenced by uh, St. Augustine. 
He said, It is very generally believed that by certain witches' spells and the power of the devil, men may be changed into wolves. So, in the Middle Ages, it was wolves' spells and the power of the devil that was allowed to turn people into werewolves, make them believe that they're werewolves. And like I said, this is the big question that they're dealing with. Are werewolves real? Like, can a person turn into a werewolf? Or is Satan basically making them think mentally that they are a werewolf or causing sort of hallucinations in people to see werewolves? And that was the big question that they were dealing with. And then kind of in the later Middle Ages, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about this, but the, the, the late medieval narratives so, such as the La Morte Author, which I think I just totally ruined that pronunciation because I'm terrible with French. But anyway, the Arthurian legends, they had references to werewolves and a, a couple of other of these medieval narratives did. But really what they were was almost domestic disputes that were usually blamed on women as the explanation of why people were being turned into werewolves. So at that point of time, it kind of displayed the anti-feminist bias that was present in that time, which, again, this is another way that you can look into the beliefs of a, a society, a civilization, is that you can, tra- you can trace the sort of anti-feminist bias that are presence, present in these narratives, and you can see how powerful the belief in the devil and the this, this fear of witchcraft and witches and sort of the unknown had a grip on people in the Middle Ages. And so the first use of lycanthropy, the term lycanthropy, comes from Reginald Scott in his 1584 book, The Discovery of Witchcraft. So again, this shows how lycanthropy was first discussed in the the context of witchcraft. And Reginald Scott was actually he was very against a lot of these beliefs about the power of the devil and the power of sort of people able to go through physical transformations. And he rejects the idea of corporeal change. He doubts the reality of the devil. And he believes that they actually had a disease that he called lupina melancholia. Now, this takes us into another very interesting theory, and one of the things that a lot of people believed is that individuals who sort of suffered from werewolfism or lycanthropy were melancholic, and this takes us into humoral theory. So, if you don't know anything about humoral theory, basically there is a belief that there was four main humors that were in humans' bodies. There were the four main fluids, uh, which were blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. Now, if you were dominant in one of these four fluids, that would sort of, well, it was said that that kind of ruled your demeanor and who you were. So if you had too much blood, you were said to be sanguine. If you had too much yellow bile, you were said to be choleric. If there's too much black bile, you were said to be melancholic. And if there's too much phlegm, you would be phlegmatic. So these are all terms that we use quite often nowadays. So I think you can figure out what 
you know, it means to be sanguine or melancholic. But basically, there's a belief that if you were melancholic, you had a higher chance of being prone to demonic infestation. So a lot of people said that the reason that people are sort of susceptible to these infestations of the devil and demons and why they might be able to turn into a werewolf is because they were melancholic and they were more naturally predisposed to being, you know, prone to demonic infestation, which would lead lead them to becoming a werewolf in the first place. So King James I, King James VI of Scotland, the first of England, he wrote a book uh, at the beginning of the 17th century called Demonology. And there's a portion of this book that deals with what he called men wolves. And he believed that werewolves were neither, uh, or, well, people that turned into werewolves were neither demon-haunted nor spirit-haunted humans, but instead they were self-deluded melancholics who faked wolf behavior. Uh, and he said that in the absence of reason, bestial impulses run rampant. And so here we can see, you know, the belief of melancholy leading to uh, somebody faking wolf behavior. So he doesn't think that it's a real thing that's occurring. He's kind of going through more of the lycanthrope route as opposed to the full werewolf route. And he doesn't believe that there's an actual transformation, but he thinks that they're basically deluded by their melancholy into believing that they're werewolves. Uh, Robert Burton, in his Anatomy of Melancholy, he believes that werewolves were a result of a form of insanity. So now you can sort of see like the theory of lycanthropy sort of picking up. This was in the 1600s, which is very different from the, uh, the ecclesiastical ordinances of King Nut. King Nut. Another man named Johann Weir believes that werewolves suffer from a mental disease that is exacerbated by the devil's inter- interference. So he thinks that they're, they're lycanthropes, basically. But because they're melancholic, the devil is able to interfere, and this actually just makes it come out more. It's already there, but the devil's interference is just exacerbating this sort of situation. So... You know, at this point of time, werewolves are just a baffling metaphysical question. That's really what it is. It gets you to question the nature of matter itself. I mean, if a person is able to transform into a werewolf, what does that say about the nature of matter? Like, there's so many things that would have to happen for a a person to turn into a werewolf. All of their limbs, their, their bones, their body would have to change completely. And it wouldn't just be a a body transformation. It would also be some sort of transformation of the soul itself. It made people question the nature of angels and the devil, the difference between humans and animals, the very nature of perception. Like, how can you know what is real, what you're seeing? It gives a key into the beliefs about mental illnesses, the nature of the creator of the universe, even. I mean... If the devil is able to do this, what does that say about the creator, right? And it's really a moral question about good and evil. And there's another person named William Perkins, who William Perkins believed that basically this is a result of hallucinations that people were going under. Uh, And he said that 
Delusion is then performed when a man is made to think he sees that which he indeed sees not. And so he's talking about werewolves here, and he believes that people are basically being believed to see what is not actually there. So this takes us into the whole theory of werewolves being a result of hallucinations. Uh, Giambattista della Porta said that these hallucinations were a result of the presence of hallucinogenic herbs that were in potion form. He said that things like stramonium, solanum manicum, and belladonna might be the sort of reason that people hallucinated and believed werewolves to exist. Um, another man named John Cotta said that, you know, that these magic cups allow uh, humans to believe that they've gone into animal bodies. And an, an individual named Paulus Igena believed that Basically, werewolves were a mix of brain malfunctions, of humoral theory, and hallucinogenic drugs. Now, this takes us further into the, a topic that I kind of touched on earlier, which is the, the presence of ergot in rye. So basically, what ergot is, is it's a, a fungi that grew on the crops in the Middle Ages, on the wheat, and in their bread in particular, and basically, ergot would cause you to go into an LSD-like state of hallucination. Now, one thing I want you to think about, and this is very important for just studying history in general, is that you have to put yourself into the mind state of the people that you're studying. The mind state of the current age is very, very different from the Middle Ages. There's all sorts of societal norms and beliefs that are present that causes the the way that they understand the world to be entirely different than what we do. It is the prism through which they make their choices, how they perceive the world. And as a non-Mormon out here in Utah, I see this taking place very clearly, you know? I mean, I didn't it didn't really sink in with me even though I've studied history and I mean, I have a history degree and this is something that I'm cognizant of but, I mean, Mormons, they make all of their decisions through the dogma of their church, right? Like, they're, they're supposedly not going to go to whatever realm of their celestial hierarchy in the afterlife if they have premarital sex or if they drink alcohol or drink coffee or do drugs or any of that stuff. So that is going to severely limit their choices based on their, their basic beliefs. And this is the same thing that was going on with people in the Middle Ages, you know? So imagine that you ingested some of this ergot rye and you ha had some kind of hallucination. You saw a werewolf or you believed yourself to be a werewolf. You would have the devil as the explanation for this. It wouldn't be, oh, yeah, you know, I ingested this hallucinogenic drug or, well, it was a substance. I don't know if you would really consider it a drug, but the devil is basically putting these delusions into my mind. I mean, this is so outside of the sphere of my normal daily life that I just can't explain this. I don't know what's going on. So basically, you know, if you were hallucinating and stuff like that, you would 
try to explain it through the overarching paradigms that are present in your society. And for people in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, frankly, in the early modern period, that was the devil. You know, so there's a lot of kind of fears that you would place on the people in your community. Um, you know, if you if you saw somebody and you were hallucinating and they're a werewolf, you would believe that they actually were under the influence of the devil and were causing you to see this stuff. So can you see how that would play out? And, I mean, this is a claim that a lot of people make, and it maybe is a little bit too reductive, and I might be even guilty of sort of recapitulating it of the belief that, you know, Ergot Rye was the cause for all of, like, these fascinating hallucinations about werewolves or witches or the devil, stuff like that. But I think it does have some credence. I mean, the story of um, the man who synthesized LSD in the first place, Albert Hoffman, and LSD comes from Ergot, so they're very closely related. If you don't know about this, you know, this uh, Albert Hoffman was a Swiss chemist. He had synthesized LSD in a laboratory he kind of had it on a shelf for a while, and then he decided to test it out again. Well, not test it out, but kind of bring it off the shelf and reopen his study of it. And he accidentally ingested some of it extravenously, like through his skin. And he rode his bike home, and he started hallucinating. You know, he was tripping on LSD, first person ever. And I guess the way the story goes is that he got back to his house. He went to his neighbor's house to maybe try and get some help, and he saw her as a witch. So sort of these archetypal forms can definitely manifest in these sort of altered states of consciousness. So I think that's a really fascinating theory. And today, the sort of Hollywood presence of werewolves is very different from the, the medieval and renaissance and also the ancient depictions of the werewolves, but still very interesting to learn about. Uh, one of the most famous sort of Hollywood portrayals of the werewolf was the 1941 movie Wolfman, uh, starring Lon Chaney. And this movie took place during, obviously, the, the beginning of the United States' involvement in World War II. So people needed that mental release. You know, uh, they needed they needed something to entertain them to take their minds off of the horrors that were uh, occurring in their lives and overseas. And, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons why I think that the Wolfman and all of these monster movies sort of got really popular during that time. Uh, there is also another movie called Werewolf of London. And this movie, there is actually censors put over the physical transformation um, that and this was because of sort of the beliefs about evolution that were present in the time. Apparently, the censors didn't want the on-screen change to take place because it was too much like Darwin's theories about the evolution of man, which still were like highly contested. This took place on the back of the Scopes Monkey Trial, which if you don't know about the Scopes Monkey Trial, but it was basically a trial of a man in Tennessee 
who he was a teacher and he was trying to teach evolution to his class and he got put on trial for it. So the censors thought that a man transforming into a beast was too racy. It was too much like Darwin's theories of evolution. So that's another very interesting thing to look at as far as that kind of unveils the overarching paradigm at that point of time, uh, the anti-evolution sort of uh, dogma that was present in early, uh, you know, 1930s, 1940s America. Uh, It's interesting to note also that Hitler, he had a lot of connections with werewolves as well at this same point of time. Um, He called his U-boats the wolf pack because they would basically go one boat at a time and pack around them and just pick them off one at a time as if they were a wolf themselves. A lot of Hitler's, I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly what aspect of like the SS or whatever it was, but some of his basically terrorists were called the werewolves. He was obsessed with wolves. He kept talismans around. Um, And so this was another very prevalent time of the wolf and the werewolf was the 1940s. And maybe that there's something more deeper that going on there because of the, the World Wars and World War II in particular that were happening at this time. There is a man in Hollywood named Kurt Siodmak who he actually came up with a lot of these creations that we associate with werewolves. One of them is the bite transformation. Uh, well, there was nothing ever associated with werewolves that they would bite somebody and that that person would turn into a werewolf. A werewolf would just tear somebody apart limb from limb and eat them and kill them. They're never believed to actually transmit their disease, essentially. Um, actually, the full moon and the silver bullet were both things that were historically associated with the werewolf. Lunacy and the, lo- the moon that word Luna, lunacy, the full moon, causing sort of craziness in people is something that's very prevalent in sort of magical thought. Uh, The silver bullet, as I'm going to show you, actually was used in a historical case called the Beast of Jevudan. So those were two things that were actually present, but the bite transformation was definitely not something that was historically associated with werewolves. Okay, so I'm going to get into some of these actually historical cases. One of the most famous one is this man named Peter Stube. So in 1591 in Bedburg, Germany, this individual was accused of going on a murderous rampage that stretched 25 years. He, com- he killed many, many people. I think it was something like 14 people he killed. And he said that he basically got a magic girdle and a magic solve that he was able to put on his skin that turned him into the werewolf. I don't really know what to do with this magic girdle thing because it comes up a lot in these historical cases. But I think the magic solve, there might be something there having to do with these magic potions, right? It might be actually some kind of hallucinogenic herb such as belladonna or wolfsbane or ergot rye, I guess ergot fungus, that was mixed into it and caused these hallucinations in the individual. Uh, But Peter Stube, 
he was tortured. He was put onto this complex torture device that they had, and they tortured the, the confession out of him. So he's one of the only people that actually confessed into being a werewolf, and he was put to death for it. But I don't really think that his confession can really be believed because, I mean, he was tortured. He got the confession out of him through torture. So, you know, that's very believable that a person would admit to being a werewolf if they were going through these heinous and disgusting torture mechanisms that they had back in the day. Another case is uh, 1603 in the south of France. It centers around a young individual named, named Jean Grenier. And basically, this individual, he was 13 at the time of his case. And he basically said that, well, he was accused by some young girls in the town. And he admitted that he stole baby, that he ate parts of children, and that he attacked several young girls. He was a self-proclaimed werewolf. He claimed that a mysterious man in the forest gave him a girdle and a magic solve to allow him to turn into a werewolf. And so that's very similar to the Peter Stube story. He was identified in trial by one of these girls that he attacked. But at his trial, a lawyer gave an impassioned speech and said that he couldn't be put to death because the, the kid was clearly insane. So this child was sentenced to life in a monastery and he died at the age of 20. So that, this may be one of those cases where he probably was more of a lycanthrope. When you look into sort of some of the details of the case, you know, he made these claims of who his father was and stuff like that that were unsubstantiated. So he might have been dealing with some issues both mentally and in his home life or whatever that caused him to re resort to lycanthropy itself. One of... The most fascinating case is, is, it's called the Beast of Gévaudan. And this case is still being discussed today in Europe. It's a famous cold case. And in the years of 1764 to 1766, in the region of Gévaudan in France, there were 102 deaths. And it was all women and children. They were found with basically cuts to their throat, there's some evidence of sexual violence that occurred in the attacks. There's claw marks and bite wounds. And the only survivor was a, a man actually named Portefeuille, and he said that it was a wolf-like creature. So he's basically saying that it, it was a wolf with features like a man. And to this day, the, the identity of the Beast of Gévaudan remains unknown. And basically, there's a lot of different theories for what was actually going on here. It, it might have been some kind of serial killer. Uh, the livestock wasn't attacked in the region, so that kind of indicates that it, it was a sort of concerted effort to kill people. And the fact that it was children and women is particularly telling. But... Basically, the peasants went out and they killed every wolf that they could find in the region. But right after that, there was an attack. So it wasn't one of these wolves that they killed. It's also interesting to note that in that region, there's cave paintings of hyenas. So one of the theories is that there is actually some kind of 
remnant of like the ice age or whatever, these old hyenas that were supposedly had died out was actually one of them. Uh, news reached the court and there was a $100,000 bounty that was put on the culprit, whatever. If you could find out who was doing this, you would get a $100,000 bounty straight from the king, Louis XV himself. And at one point, a man in a wolf suit was killed. Uh, but later on, there was another attack. So it wasn't him. And later on, the king ended up sending his greatest hunter out to the region. And he killed a giant wolf. But three months later, there was more attacks. The rack attacks kept happening. So it wasn't that giant wolf that he had. Some people think that maybe it, it, it was a, a rabid wolf. But, and that he, some kind of human was teaching these wolves, but humans, humans can't teach wolves. Wolves aren't res- receptive like dogs and aren't able to be trained to do specific things like that. But here's kind of what I believe, okay? There is an individual named Jean Chastel. He lived in the outskirts of town, and apparently he had been kind of exiled and people had turned their backs on him. And oftentimes in, in these ages... People who lived on the outside of town and were sort of different, they were the ones that got blamed for witchcraft and stuff like that a lot of the time. But simultaneously at this time, the influence of the church was also declining. And so they kind of had a reason to get people back on their side. So I think that possibly Jean Chastel somehow got control of a hyena, actually. And there's hyenas in the collections from this time, the the royal whatever collections in France. And, you know, people of influence, they had menageries at these times where they would have exotic animals. So it's not unforeseeable that a hyena could have been present there. And that he basically, I think, went into a conspiracy with the church to basically train a hyena to go out and kill people. And people would think that this is the devil basically getting at them for going away from their faith. And simultaneously, the church could gain more influence and John Chastel could also get influence because he ended up actually shooting this creature with a silver bullet. He only took one shot and he killed it. And he went out into the woods and basically immediately found it and killed it. So I think that there is some evidence that he actually was had a close relationship with this hyena or whatever it was. I think it was a hyena. And that he shot and killed it. And it had to be from point blank. Well, not point blank, but it had to be from close range. They've showed that it's very harder to actually hit the target with a silver bullet than it is a normal bullet. So... I think that's what it was. I think it was a conspiracy between the clergy and Jean Chastel to basically simultaneously regain influence. So one last sort of instance of werewolves actually popping up that I'm going to talk about comes from basically the modern age in America. And there's a phenomenon, it's called the Beast of Bray Road, The investigations into this started in 1991. There's a woman named Linda Godfrey who has gotten innumerable firsthand reports of seeing this beast. Uh, It occurs in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, typically in this area called Bray Road. 
And people have said that they are seeing wolf-like creatures, basically a man-wolf type thing, uh, walking around. And when Linda Godfrey went to actually investigate the sightings, she saw that the county animal control officer had a drawer that was marked werewolf. And so she started investigating it a lot more, and then the, the national news caught sight of it. And it sort of ran from there. And it's it's really an ongoing event. There's sightings that have been in the next county as well. There's multiple theories. Some people think that's mental patients, possibly hoaxers. But hoaxers doesn't really make sense because it's a, a rural area where these sightings are occurring. So if somebody was hoaxing, they would just have to wait at the road for people to come out there. And I don't think that, that ma- makes a lot of sense. Linda Godfrey says that she believes the people, but she thinks that they might be seeing different things. Um, it may, they mainly happen in autumn. There, I think there was one that happened in uh, the spring, and there's an individual that they came forward and said that two wolf children had been seen, that they saw two wolf children. But again, there's really no sort of overriding... Well, there, it's, there's no conclusion to this case. It's ongoing. Nobody knows what's really happening there. But it's just interesting that it's still going on in the modern day right here in America.